Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Now, there's been a lot of talk about vaccines and efficacy, and the mRNA vaccine is the one that's the preferable one, but how safe is it? The inventor of the mRNA technology states governments are not being open with people about the mRNA vaccine and risks associated with it. And researchers have found a link between rare cases of juvenile heart inflammation and vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna. That's, of course, mRNA. Dr. Robert Malone is the inventor of the mRNA technology. Uh, he is uh, bench to bedsides, vaccines, and biologics consulting in the United States. And uh, Dr. Malone joins us. Dr. Malone, thank you for taking the time. Hi, Roy. How can I help you? Uh, your professional background makes you uniquely qualified to speak out about mRNA vaccines. So what concerns you more as the inventor of the technology? Is it uh, about possible health risks presented by mRNA vaccines or that the governments, uh, by and large, aren't being fully transparent with people or both? Both. And I'm afraid I really don't want to sound like a downer, but the data keep coming in. Um, and they're not breaking in a good way. Um, I'd like to just, forgive me, uh, start by reading from a manuscript that was just published in Vaccine, so this is peer-reviewed. came out two days ago. The safety of COVID-19 vaccinations, we should rethink the policy. Um, and I think that's a pretty comprehensive statement of where I'm getting to these days. And I'd like to just quote uh, from... Uh, one of the conclusions after analysis of a large amount of data, much of it being Dutch uh, safety data, the U.S. safety databases, um, even the CDC admits is not, not, not good, not high quality. So here's the conclusion. Simply put, as, as we prevent three deaths by vaccination, we incur two deaths. Okay? That's a horrible risk-benefit ratio, and that's for deaths. That's, we're not even talking about um, the morbidity, the disease associated with it. And I don't, I really don't think that this is a consequence of, of the technology itself. It has to do with the proteins being expressed as antigens. Now, but, you're a vaccine specialist. You're a vaccine specialist, and you support right. vaccines, right? Uh, this has been my whole life. Yeah. But I'm... I'm uh, you know, pro-transparency, pro-bioethics, pro-safety, um, and pro-evidence-based medicine. So uh, just uh, because I have an intrinsic conflict of interest in this, the fancy words we say, in favor of vaccines, and I do. I mean, this is my business. This is my life. Um, and this is, in a fundamental way, my technology, although I didn't design these particular vaccines. But... Uh, the safety signals are accumulating, and they have. There has not been transparency about that, but and there's been suppression of any discussion about those issues, even among the scientific community. It's extremely difficult to get anything like this published. I'm I'm uh, fascinated that it came out in in the journal Vaccines, um, but it has, and I think that there's been a bit of a, a turning of the tide lately. Dr. Malone, let me ask you this. Awareness. Let me ask you this. We, we understand the vaccines technology is experimental and that there hasn't been time to fully and critically assess the efficacy and the safety of the mRNA vaccines. I'm just a layperson here. 
as under normal conditions uh, would have occurred. But given where things were, with the rapid rise of infections worldwide throughout 2020, was there really another different way to proceed with engaging in a global vaccination campaign? Hmm. Uh, it's not just vaccines are the only option. The other option is drugs and repurposed drugs. So um, that's a little bit of a false dichotomy. And uh, yes, I so I've been through many uh, outbreaks and I've been at the point of the spear, including the Ebola one, which was really uh, Ebola just drives people crazy for a good reason. It's a horrible way to die. Yeah. It's very infectious. And uh, there's there's a need early in the outbreak to uh, make decisions on the fly without enough information. And uh, <clears throat> in this case, there was a strategic decision to focus on advancing and expediting these novel vaccine technologies that are based on gene therapy in lieu of focusing on more traditional vaccines and drugs and repurposed drugs. That was the decision, particularly within the U.S. government. And uh, so that's, that's what we've seen. But the, the, we're now in a different position. Um, that was then. We're now in a position where we have time and oxygen to look at the data, um, think about it, and uh, really start acting based on evidence rather than on intuition, which is kind of what's been happening. Yeah, I know now. that your, your life Have is... Have I addressed vaccine. your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah it does. I, mean, I ask laypersons questions. I just ask questions that matter to okay, I think, most good. people. And, and by the way, today yeah. is my two weeks anniversary of my second Pfizer vaccination. So I'm supposedly fully vaccinated and I, I'm still glad I'm, I'm still glad I was vaccinated, but I, I'm very interested in what you have to say. We, you and I have talked off the air as well. You talked about a Canadian involvement. You wanted to talk about that. Yes. Yeah, so Dr. Bridle, is that the, the, uh, university professor in Ontario. He's a university professor in Ontario. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, Dr. Bridle, um, my impression, is a person of high integrity, and uh, I think he's a super example of uh, a high-quality academic uh, coming out of the Canadian system. And he's he challenging the MRNA as well. He is, and it's based on a Freedom of Information Act uh, action that he and others took because they were concerned about some of the safety signals they were hearing. And uh, what they did was they managed to spring loose a confidential document, what we call the common technical document, that Pfizer had filed with the Japanese authorities. Presumably the same document was filed with the Canadian and U.S. and European authorities. And what that revealed was, despite the uh, assertions that no corners had been cut, a lot of corners had been cut. And uh, there was some data in that document that uh, he found alarming, and I independently also found alarming. So I'm not aware of this document. Because I'm not aware of this yeah, document. It's readily available. Yeah, no, I'm um, just not aware of it. And I can send it to you. Yeah, please do. So uh, but, uh, let, me, let me ask you then, you invented this technology 30-odd years ago, correct? Correct. Were the Although I'd like, to, I'd like to give a shout-out um it's that was then, and it was a first-generation version. Mm -hmm. The current tech is largely enabled by the work of your own Dr. Peter Cullis of University of British Columbia, 
and he's another person who doesn't really seek the media, but has done fantastic work for 40 years. And the truth is that the effectiveness, the potency of these vaccines, um, which is really high, is largely a consequence of his own breakthrough work and that of his team at UBC. Okay, Dr. Malone, so so you but you invented the fundamentals in the mRNA technology. Was what you had established and what you had created was that compromised um, with the creation of the current vaccine? Is it your sense that it was compromised? No, I wouldn't put it that way. The the, the technology is what it is. Mm-hmm. This is with with vaccinology. We're always us scientists or physicians are always wrestling about: uh, Is this really the right antigen? Is this the right open reading frame? Is this the right preparation? Is this the right adjuvant? And it goes around and around. There are no perfect drugs, right? We can all agree on that. Yeah. Everything has safety issues. Yeah. And in this case, I think what we had was some decisions made on the fly in the best intentions to use a protein that was very, very immunogenic, was reasonably likely to be protective. But what wasn't really appreciated in the rush to get something out the door was that this protein also had biologic activity independent of its being an antigen. And that's the problem. Here, what we've got here, frankly, is, is a situation where it worked so good that we ended up with a lot of this protein, both from the adenoviral vectors, so that's J and J and others, and from the RNAs, that we now have, it looks like we have problems associated with the high levels of protein that are being produced, unexpectedly high. Fantastically high, amazingly high. I, I couldn't have ever imagined that anything would work this well. But, uh, you know, like with a lot of things, um, those types of advances come with some risks. And here, I think what we've had is inadvertently finding a situation where we're producing a protein that isn't just an antigen. And I think that there's pretty strong indication that that protein is causing blood clotting, the cardiac uh, swelling, and a number of the other things that are uh, contributing right. to these this surprisingly high death rate. And it's an easy fix. Number one, we can drop the dose. Number two, we can go to just one dose instead of two. Most of the adverse events are happening in the second dose. Number three, we can um, uh, re-engineer these vaccines so that the biologic activity associated with spike is knocked out. There's a bunch of things we can do. Okay. This is not holy moly. This is the end of the world, and we're all going to yeah. die. Doctor Malone, um, I have to stop but, you. I have to stop you there, just because we're out of time. Doctor Blondo, thank you for the time. You heard uh, Doctor Malone and his expressed concerns about potential health risks associated with mRNA vaccines, particularly. I think he said in the younger and youngest cohorts. What's your feeling about that? Well, first of all, thanks, Roy, for asking me to come on. Um, you know, um, this is a this is a tough issue, obviously, to to get around uh, and try to explain in such a way that that, that everybody understands. But, but there's no there's no intervention that's available. There's, there's no medicine. There's no vaccine that that doesn't have some potential for side effects. Uh, that extends every, from everything that people are taking for monitoring or, or sort of for regulating their their heart disease. Uh, whether they're infected and require antibiotics, and, and of course, all of the other vaccines that have been available. So every vaccine and every medication has some level of risk. Um, to think, though, that, that data is being hidden and journals are being forced not to publish uh, 
uh, you know, credible peer-reviewed information to me does not seem uh, right. Uh, I personally am the editor-in-chief of a mainstream journal called Expert Reviews on Respiratory Medicine. I've not been given any direction by anybody to say that we're not to look at information that would uh, paint these vaccines in a negative way. So, so I'm not so sure that, that I buy uh, that, that, you know, there's this massive controversy that's going on and stuff is being hidden um, when I haven't seen the evidence to indicate that that's the case. Um, I, I just mentioned a few minutes ago that today's my second week anniversary of the second shot, so I'm fully vaccinated now, and I feel really, really good about it. Uh, but how much trust can we place in the vaccines millions of us have in our, our bodies uh, you know, now? Well, I mean, I think we place the trust based on what the evidence shows. And, you know, the evidence uh, in the clinical trials indicated that it was efficacious in preventing people from catching COVID-19. And clearly the data indicated that uh, it uh, prevented people from getting severe disease requiring hospitalization uh, and uh, preventing death in, in the trials that were performed. Um, I, I fully acknowledge that this occurred in a very, very short period of time. But then again, the pandemic was rolling around the earth in a, in a very, very rapid way, and millions of people uh, were becoming infected and, and, in fact, dying. And, you know, what we've had in excess of 25,000 deaths in, in Canada alone. And, and so clearly, uh, I think that um, the way that I would choose to look at this is, is to look at the accomplishments that have been done and say, you know, kudos to those that were able to bring something to market so quickly uh, that was so protective for so many individuals around the world. Um, does that mean that we shouldn't be looking closely at these products to make sure that there aren't things in there that, that perhaps were not seen in the clinical trials in terms of, you know, side effects or, or consequences? Absolutely, we should be looking at the data and we should be scrutinizing it. Um, and then uh, we should be making decisions going forward. But um, uh, I think that um, it, it was a necessary uh, thing to do at a time when, when this pandemic was rolling around the world, and it still is in many countries. Um, um, and uh, and I think it probably prevented many people from succumbing to this particular virus. Well, I said to uh, Dr. Malone, when things were really, uh, in 2020, early 2020, starting the rapid rise of infections worldwide, there really wasn't another different or different way to proceed with engaging in a global vaccination program. We had to get it going. And you say, uh, Dr. Blondo, there was a lot of international cooperation. I think sometimes what confuses people, and it confused me, Whereas when we have NASI, for example, changing their decision on what vaccine should work with what vaccine and when and how, and people become confused and start to ask questions and start to wonder. Yep. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, and I think that one of the, one of the things that I will readily uh, agree to is the fact that I think on some aspects of, of the whole vaccine campaign, we have had in some instances a little bit of a communications nightmare, meaning that um, that there was at times, I think, a little bit of a disconnect on, on uh, uh, how certain information should have been shared and in the manner in which it should have been shared. And that, I certainly don't mean in terms of concealing anything, but, but I think that there should have been very, very clear messages um, about why certain decisions were taken. And, and that, I think, would have helped to eliminate some of the confusion, you know, if, if, if people had confusion about what those messages were. So, so I readily agree that, that we could have been better in our communications. But at the same time, I still think that um, you know, uh, you know, we we had this technology that's been available and was able to be used in such a way that uh, an intervention was possible. And, and I do agree that that other things like biological products and and drugs are, are another element that can be used. 
But I don't think that they would have had the same impact as a massive immunization campaign. Saturday, I tweeted earlier today, Afghan interpreters who accompanied Canadian troops into battle and saved Canadian lives face death from Taliban. U.S., U.K., Australia evacuating their interpreters. Trudeau government is, quote, monitoring, end quote, situation, a.k.a. doing nothing. Today, June 26, two interpreters join us, one in Afghanistan, the other in Dallas. Now, the interpreter in Dallas has been on this program on a number of occasions over the years. We got to know him as left behind Alex. And uh, the other interpreter, because his life is under threat, we are just going to call him Mr. Khan. He's in Afghanistan. So, first of all, and I value both of you being on this program, and I want everybody in this country to know that the, the interpreters in Afghanistan, as Canadian troops have told us, saved lives of Canadian soldiers by their presence, their understanding of the language, customs, and going out into battle alongside, unarmed, but going out alongside into battle with Canadian troops. And we had Major Mark Campbell, who's going to be on the show tomorrow, told us that often the interpreters would be the first target for the insurgents of the Taliban because they knew the value the interpreters were to the Canadian government. But what is our federal government doing about bringing them to Canada? Nothing. Oh, I'm sorry. They're monitoring it. Sajad Kasimi, we can now use his name. We used to call him Left Behind Alex. Sajad, how are you? Yes, thank you very much. How are you, Sajad? I'm doing, I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. And, and you are in well, Dallas, Texas. Thank you for your for program as well. Yeah. Well, have you talked to each other in a moment? You're in Dallas, right? Yes, sir. of course. I'm in Dallas. And can you give me just a 30-second version of how you were able to get out of Afghanistan and make your way to Dallas? It was a miracle. So I didn't even expect it. Like, I applied for the SIV program, which stands for a special negotiating visa for interpreters who stood alongside the U.S. members or military personnel on the front lines in Afghanistan. Mr. Khan, in Afghanistan... Are you afraid for your life? Are you afraid the Taliban will try to kill you? Yes, do you know, sir? I, first of all, I want to pay my regard to uh, you, to your radio, and to all your staff, and to all Canadians who are hearing my wife. Can you hear me, sir? I can hear you, yes. Go ahead, please. Yeah. So, so yes, uh, do you know, uh, even, even though uh, life in Afghanistan is very, very dangerous, before, but do you know, since three months, since the U.S. decided to withdraw his its troops from Afghanistan, so do you know, uh, insurgents retreated, they took a lot of grounds, uh, and again, a lot of territory, they captured a lot of district, and everything is awful here, especially the interpreter life, because do you know, some work with the interpreter with uh, any ISAF country, so he will be never forgiven. Uh, so, therefore, I want to demand um, Mr. Prime Minister Trudeau and all Canadians to, as we help you, please help us and save our lives, uh, as the situation is very, very bad. So, Mr. Khan, if, if you are not brought to Canada, and Canada can do it, the Americans are doing it, the British are doing it, the Australians are doing it, other countries have done it. If you are not brought to Canada, are you, you are convinced 
the Taliban will try to kill you. Correct? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like obviously a lot of people have been killed, a lot of interpreters have been killed because, do you know, two months ago one interpreter got killed uh, in my, my, like my in province, my province to the district, the province I'm from, and it's clearly everybody know about it, so. Yeah. Sajad, let's hope your phone connection is better. So you have a better phone connection to Afghanistan than we do to Dallas. You never know what's going to happen with technology. Can you try to, Sajad, tell us please how it is that you were able to leave Afghanistan, get out of the country and make your way to Dallas. You still want to come to Canada, but how did you do it? You know, like as I mentioned before, I applied in 2015 for this special immigration visa, which is dedicated for the interpreters and also the subcontractors and also uh, the work. We stood alongside the U.S. personnel, not no matter like it's uh, military personnel or civilian. But of course, there was a program. I mean, the program. They, this is the same program that Canada had, but they closed the program. So it was a miracle. I didn't have like enough documents, but I got approval. I got approval in 2019. Yeah. Unexpected. I mean, unexpected for me, and I call it as a miracle. And, of course, uh, I feel sorry for the rest of the people that they are still back in there, especially Alam Khan and the rest of my colleagues who stood alongside Canadian forces. Of course, everything happened out of the blue for me that I could make, that I could make it out and I could get out of the country, get out of the war zone with my family. Sajad, so, no, you have no doubt, Sajad, so, that uh, Mr. Khan is uh, in great danger, that the other interpreters are in great danger, right? You have no doubt about that. There is no doubt about it. The, the, the situation is getting worse every other day. I mean, it's really critical for them. I really feel sorry for Khan and the rest of the colleagues. There is a solution for it. There is a solution, and I have that solution in my mind. I, th- I thought about it because here in, in, here in the United States, the United States Congress, they signed a letter, they sent it to... Uh, Biden's administration, so Biden's administration almost uh, approved it. So we're going to evacuate the interpreters into a safe country, the third country, to do the processing stuff. The same way happened for the Lithuanian interpreters who stood alongside Canadian forces. I mean, the parliament or whoever, the officials, Canadian officials, they can sign a letter, send it to Trudeau's administration. Yeah, they can make the decision today. Mr. Trudeau and his government can make the decision today to bring Mr. Khan and the other interpreters who stood alongside our Canadian troops. And we've had Canadian troops say on this program that you interpreters saved Canadian soldiers' lives. So we didn't have to see another procession down the highway of heroes. They came home alive because of you. And you have earned the right to come to Canada with your families and live here free and with the support of the country and the support of the people. Mr. Khan, what are you doing? What do you have to do in Afghanistan today to stay alive? What are you doing to just try to avoid being captured and killed? Uh, there's another thing I can't do, because right now the situation is very, very bad, because do you know everything is doing and I explain it to you, but do you know, you might have known about the situation in Afghanistan, so there is nothing, so I don't think... Uh, I don't have any option, so I don't have money to escape. I don't have nothing, so the only option is for me if Canada accepts us as a refugee, 
that would be a good solution because if you don't have a lot of money to escape from this country, it's possible. But without that, it's impossible. You have to be, I, you have to, I'm sick here. And you worry every day. Every day, every day, because every, not only me, everybody who works uh, with Canadian or with any ISAF country, he's worried about his life. What did you do, Mr. Khan, with Canadian soldiers? When you went out with Canadian soldiers, uh, what did you do? How often yeah, did I you was, go? go ahead. Yes. Yeah, what I have done for Canada, because I was interpreter with Canadian for three years in different Kandahar district. We were going out for patrolling, listening, Taliban chattering, and then we informed Canadian that, okay, we will get closer or we will get track to terror because giving information about uh, their activity, because we used to have a, uh, like, doing a reconnaissance ready with ourselves. And do you know, during the, when we had, like, when we trapped in any type of uh, ambush or attack, so we, I was translated the time between a and uh, between a and Canadian. So that was what we did for Canada. Sajad, as you're listening to Mr. Khan, your friend, must be very difficult. You've you've been able to get out, and I'm so glad you're you're out. You're in Dallas. You want to come to Canada, but it must be very difficult for you to listen to uh, Mr. Khan uh, speak about the fear he's living with every day. It's very difficult. Yeah, I really I mean I really, really really feel sorry for Khan. I mean I hope he had the chance to get out. I mean he could get out like years ago, but he's still in limbo. Like consider like. He has kids. He has family. You know what I mean? It's really important. It's not about only him. It's also about his family. Sajad, go ahead and really, talk. Really go, go, Sajad, go ahead and talk to your friend. Okay. Uh, how you doing, Khan? How are you, sir? How are you doing, man? Not bad. Just not really happy about your situation yeah, right I'm now. I'm listening. Yeah. You're very lucky, my friend, because you got out of this situation and we still stuck in here. So it's really terrible, terrible, man, to suffer. We every day we enduring yeah. different thing, man. You and I and the rest of the interpreters who stood alongside ISF and NATO, they deserve it. I mean, look at your situation right now. It's not what you deserve. You deserve to be in a peaceful situation in a tranquilized area. Like Canada, you deserve it. But I don't know. I'm wondering why the process was stopped. Yeah. In despite sure. that, the United States and the other countries are taking out their interpreters. And recently, my friend Roy mentioned about three countries US, UK, and Australia. They evacuated. I would like to add three more. They did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like Germany, France, and Netherlands. They did the same, the same thing for. Their interpreters, they evacuated them all. And, and just to repeat, Mr. Khan, you are concerned every day for your life and your life, lives of your family. Tell us about your family. How many kids do you have? And uh, tell us about your family. Actually, actually, sir, if I was, if I were alone, so it wasn't a problem because if you are a single man, you can escape everywhere. But do you know the problem is that I got wife and so how can I leave my kids in this terrible situation? And your wife and your children are in danger, clearly, because they're part of your life. 
Yeah, they're a part of my life because they will. It's like impossible. It's possible that will he they will harm you anyway, any kind, any any kind yeah, way. What do you, uh, Mr. Khan? What do you want to say to the people of of Canada? Uh, I want to say to the people of Canada, like in the United States, there are all, a lot of senator, MP, and uh, organization, humanitarian organization, refugee organization, they gather in front of White House and they convinced Mr. Joe Biden and Joe Biden decided to get 100,000 local staff who work with uh, Americans. So why this is difficult for Canada to evacuate only f- maybe 50 or 100 personally? Yeah, that's it, eh? 50, between 50 and 100. They could do that in one plane. 100,000. Yeah, they would activate. So you, you, everybody know about it because then the media says and he confirmed it. Yeah. Um, Sajid, how many interpreters are we talking about? Uh, for Canada or the U.S.? For Canada. For Canada, it's... Roughly. If, uh, because as far as I know, because I'm not uh, well familiar with the, most of them, but I've seen when we had that, let's say, uh, demonstration in front of the Canadian embassy in Kabul, we were only about 25, 30 people. And, of course, I don't know about the rest of them, if they're gone. I mean, to the European countries or other, any other countries. But uh, as far as I know, it's about 25 or, let's say, 30 families that I've seen. I've seen, like, the, uh, the interpreters there. And there's no question, again, in your mind that Mr. Khan's life is in very serious uh, threat, and, uh, and as yours was. There's no doubt. And it's something that the government of Canada could do today. They could do it today. And if there's 25 to 30 families, one or two plane loads would take care of that. So they need to get it done. And I hope the people of Canada will get on to their members of parliament. Can I ask something? Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, like United States, they could evacuate more than a hundred and thousands of interpreters without any obstacle. And they're still doing it. I mean, there are about... 80, like 18,000 more, they're on the way. Most of them received their visas. Most of them waiting for their process to be done. So they are trying to evacuate them into a safe country, like a third country, to do the process and stuff, like their visa right. process. Right. But it's really funny for, I mean... So we, we but we have to, Sajjad, we, we, we have to concentrate on what Canada can do and must do. Bill C-10 was passed by the House, the Liberals and the NDP, but opposed by the Conservative Party, and it's being stopped from receiving royal assent in the Senate. Senator Leo Hosakos joins us, Conservative Senator and the uh, C-10 critic in the Senate. Senator, thank you very much uh, for the time. In layman's terms, what is Bill C-10? Why is it so contentious? Look, this is the most uh, far-reaching uh, abuse of uh, power by a government that I have ever seen. C-10 essentially gives the CRTC, um, Mr. Green, and a bunch of bureaucrats in, in Ottawa the authority to essentially decide uh, what we see, what we post as Canadians, um, what we, you know, what we read on on the various digital platforms. And I think it opens the door to abuses if we're not careful. And I think for far too long, Canadians, sometimes we tend to 
uh, not cherish as much our freedoms and fundamental rights as much as we should. Uh, the Trudeau government would argue, of course, that C-10 is necessary to curb hate and violence speech online, that it also aims to uh, cause or create a, a dynamic where online giants like Facebook and Netflix play by the rules uh, Canadian broadcasters must play by and require an increase in Canadian content. And Mr. Trudeau and his minister have said C-10 will not target social media posting, that this is a red herring by the Conservative Party. And you say what to Mr. Trudeau? Well, what I say is the government claims that this legislation will create a level playing field between the large online foreign streaming companies and traditional Canadian broadcasters. And I'd like to make it clear that we absolutely support the government undertaking the modernization of the Broadcasting Act. And I I highlight that it hasn't been modernized since 1991. So it's well overdue, particularly with all the changes we've been seeing on various platforms. But what this actually does, instead of modernizing the act to bring it in line with digital uh, players in the digital age, it appears to try to bring the digital age back to bringing it in line with antiquated framework, one that benefits special interest groups. And, of course, the liberals and, and our government knows a lot about special interest groups that find themselves on the receiving end. While I, clearly I feel this bill uh, really penalizes creators and doesn't give them an equal playing field and takes away from them an opportunity they currently have. And for sure, also, why should the government be determining choice when it comes to Canadian consumers? Now, in terms of the last point, the government saying that it's a a red red herring and the Conservatives are exaggerating, well, look, 4.1 was a clause that was removed. It was originally in the bill, and then it was removed, and that clause protected user-generated content. So why would the government remove it if, as they say now, we really have nothing to worry, the Conservatives are exaggerating, we're not going to tell young Canadians what they can post on TikTok or Twitter or Facebook or YouTube. Well, if you're not going to, and the CRTC is not going to, why wouldn't you leave the clause in place? Yeah, I can't speak for the government, even on a, even if I tried to. I couldn't. Um, Senator Husako, there's also a move, as I understand it, to return much of the content of the contentious C-13 legislation, which failed to pass, because a great concern, this brings us back to the issue of freedom of expression would be under uh, duress if C-13 had been passed. Uh, do you see this next move by the minister and the prime minister to be in that context? Oh, without a doubt. this uh, I believe C-10 was just a precursor of things to come. The liberals seem to be convinced that they are the masters of determining Uh, what is said and what is appropriate to be said and what shouldn't be said. And, of course, I'm of the view that freedom of speech is freedom of speech. And freedom of speech is not when you're articulating things I agree with, Mr. Green. Freedom of speech is when when you're articulating things I don't agree with, but you maintain that right to do it anyways. Yeah, absolutely. No question. Uh, There was an interesting time during during one of the, uh, during a uh, a tribunal, human rights tribunal, where the lead investigator said under testimony that freedom of speech does not exist in Canada, that it's an American concept. So he didn't even know what our constitution is about or our freedom, our our, our charter. uh, I was just stunned when I heard the lead investigator for the Human Rights Commission make that statement. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.